Hello, loves. Welcome to the first episode of A Thousand True Crimes. We're super pumped, excited, Welcome, nervous. everyone. Um, we still have no idea what we're doing, so bear with Never. us with, as we figure it all out. So, Joe, how are you doing? <laughs> I saw that you got your Christmas tree. Yeah, we finally got our Christmas tree, so we're going to, after this, we're going to decorate it, and... We were going to like put ornaments on it, but like I was telling you before, um, the podcast, my cat, it's a smaller tree this year. So I don't know. He's attempted to jump to the top of it multiple times now. We have it like bungeed down to the little stand that it's on so it doesn't go anywhere. But now we're like drastically rethinking whether we want to put like fragile ornaments on our tree. Because usually it's like back in a corner and then we kind of like put enough furniture around it that like... That cats can't really get to it, but, and of course we don't put any at the bottom where they just yeah. like to hang out, but this one, just because of where we've had to put it, ugh, it's going to be a nightmare. So we'll see. We'll see what happens with that. What are you drinking today? Um, so I'm finishing off a Truly because I had one left over, but then I found these new drinks. It's um, an alcoholic seltzer. Okay. It's called Press. And they have these like super unique flavors. Like um, there's like a lemongrass and sage. The one I'm having now is grapefruit cardamom, which is the best flavor. These are so good. If you haven't tried them, you should try them. They're delicious. They're called pressed. I feel like you went like now these hard, hard seltzer waters are going like straight hipster. Like lemongrass yeah. and, and sage. Like, it's mostly okay. just more sugar, but it is really delicious. Oh, well, that's what gets you. <laughs> Uh, well, enjoy it. We're going to need it for this one. This one gets a little rough. Oh, yikes. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. And then, of course, I'm drinking my rosé all day. Delish. We should say this is we're switching up. So the way we're doing it is Chelsea's going to tell me about a documentary that she watched about a true crime. And I, I know nothing about it or unless like except what I just know culturally about it and stuff like that. Um, and so then we just talk about it. Yeah, so let's crack into it. The first one. So the first case we're getting into is the case of Jeffrey MacDonald. And I found this documentary on Hulu, and it's on FX, and it's called A Wilderness of Error, and it's directed by Mark Smerling, but it's based off the book by Errol Morris, and it's the book that he, Mr. Morris wrote was A Wilderness of Error, and it's called The Trials of Jeffrey MacDonald. Okay. I'm excited about this. It's a lot. I wanted to rewatch the first episode of it because I was definitely a little wine drunk and I feel like I might have gotten a few things confused, but (laughs) honestly, after doing other research, I was like, I really can't watch this again. Like I'm so burnt out from it. It was bad. It's just, it's very like sad and trigger warning. There is crimes against children in this. Yeah, I just like got to the point where I was like, I really can't watch it again. And I highly suggest going and watching the documentary on Hulu or FX because they show like actual home videos of the family and they have a lot like, we'll get into it, but like um, they have like voice recordings that you actually hear and reenactments. And I didn't put all the information in the notes because I didn't want to like I want people to go watch it because it's very detailed and it's very well done. So definitely go check it out. And then I also got information from Wikipedia and then from um, another article from News Observer. So I just want to make sure 
we get our sources out there so no one can come we'll have me. all the links for that um yeah in and the mr morris info. like don't come after me because my maiden name was morris so we could be like cousins so like don't you're sue probably me. related we're probably yeah. related so don't sue me please like i really enjoy she's probably a great niece yeah yeah so <laughs> let's crack into it so we'll do some background <laughs> information just don't sue us and also we have no affiliation <laughs> or you Hulu can you'll or, get nothing we yeah, have we nothing. Have, we have no association with any of these things. There's no sponsorship. So if anybody does want to sponsor us, that'd be great. But um, this you is can all take just, our, our beer fund. Yeah, this is our all wine just fund. me being wine drunk one night and watching documentaries and being like, holy shit. So. Yep. Best way to watch them. <laughs> sometimes that's what you need to watch them. Um, so background information. All right. Let's crack into it. Jeffrey McDonald. And I'm going to be saying Mac a lot because there's a McDonald that comes into play for a second. And um, okay. I feel like I just need to like make that clear. Was okay. born October 12th in 1943. Three. Sheesh. Already starting close. In Queens, New York to Robert and Dorothy McDonald. Colette was Jeff's wife. And she was okay. born May 10th, 1944 in Patchaqua, New York. And okay. her father died when she was young. So her mother, Mildred, married Freddie Casaba. Uh, and Freddie is the, like, the real MVP in this whole case. And you'll find out why. Okay. Like, I All want right. Freddie. So we need to remember Freddie. Oh, yeah. Fucking Freddie's the shit. So he and – so Jeff and Colette met in high school and dated on and off. And then in 1962 – he enrolled as a pre-med student at Princeton on a three-year scholarship. So he's extremely intelligent. Oh, okay. Yeah. In his second year, so like him and Colette were dating high school, broke off. And then in his second year of being at Princeton, he and Colette started to date again. And she okay. was a freshman at Skidmore College Do we know why they Saratoga. broke it off? Just high school. He started okay. dating somebody else, like just high school. Wanted to try um, out a new thing. Yeah. In August 1963, they find out that Colette's pregnant with their first daughter. So Aww. with the blessing of their families, they end up getting married on September 14th. And Colette what? ends up dropping out of school. And um, yeah. Well, it's the 60s. Like, what was I know. Choice? I know. <laughs> so they married on September 14th. And Kimberly Catherine their first daughter, was born on April 18th, 1964. Okay. So he ends up going to medical school, and it's a lot for the two, and he's just working all the time. Oh, wow. Okay. So he ends up going to medical school, and their second daughter, Kristen, was born May 8th, 1967. So because they were just like, he was, he was like never home. So he, okay. on July 1st, 1969, he joins the Army. He and, left medical school to join the army? Yeah, pretty much. Wow. Yeah. Like, I mean, this was like, so I was getting this information from Wikipedia. So it sounded like he left, um, like either after an internship or he just didn't continue along that path. He just stopped and then joined the army. Huh. Huh. Um, okay. So something must've happened. Well, they were just stressed out a lot because yeah, he was yeah, just constantly yeah. never home and she had, you know, two little kids this and that. So yeah. Um, he was, so when he joined the army, he was to actually undergo a physician's basic course. But while he was at that course, he decides to join the green beret 
the Green Berets and become a physician with them instead of just being okay. A typical, so he's still yeah. doing medical, just doing it in the army. army. Got yeah. it. Got it. Got it. Although now not just an army, a very high stress. It sounds like he might be a bit of a adrenaline junkie. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, if you're going to join the Green Berets when you didn't have to and become their physician, like yeah, and to but become you their find doctor, out that um, because he was in the physician track, he'll never like go overseas. So he never was in overseas because we're right now in the middle of like Vietnam too. Okay. 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 Got it. So in September, he and the family moved to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And so Colette decides at this point, she's going to try to finish her studies. She She wanted to get her bachelor's in English literature and teach part time. Can I interrupt you for a second? mm -hmm. Why do a lot of... um, crazy people come out of Fort Bragg. Why do is girl Google Fort hood and tell me what the fuck's going down there. <laughs> I just I feel like know. I've heard all my true crime podcasts I've been listening to lately. I've heard so many people be like, and they were at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. And I'm like, what is going on in North Carolina? I don't know. Cause it's armies. So I don't know what's like stationed there. So I don't know if the units that are there are just very high stressed units where they're doing like, Maybe. special forces. So there's just very high stress. I- I'm not sure. But when they get That's to crazy. Fort Bragg, Colette is also three months pregnant with their third child, which was a little Oh, boy. man. So that's kind of the background of the family. So now we're going to crack into the night of the murders. Okay. So this is a kind of, this is where it starts getting a little crazy. So. Okay. Bear with me. So on February 18th, 1970, at 3.40 a.m. on Fort Bragg, the military police, aka MPs, which is what I'll be calling them, the Here, two MPs shall be known as <laughs> what they're at, like, no one calls them the military police. It's the MPs, right, right, right. Um, the MPs receive a call of disturbance, and Ken Micah was one of the first MPs to arrive on scene. And it was a cold, and it was a rainy night, which is important to kind of think about for physical evidence down the road. Okay. So when Micah gets Meaning to the it's house, all gone. yeah, I mean, you just need to like, you'll see, you'll see. Okay. So when Micah gets to the house, he runs into fellow MP Richard Tavir and they okay. can't get into the house, but so they end up like trying to get into the front door, they can in, you know, windows, whatever. So they end up going to the back of the house and the back door is kind of like propped open. So Uh, that's how they get into the house is through the back door. It's like a jar. It's not like forced. It's just like kind of open. But even if there's anything open that gives the police like, what is their reasonable uh, or cause? What is the thing that's called when they get to enter? If they're concerned, if they heard something. I know what you're trying to say and I can't remember it. I think it's called reasonable cause, but yeah, it gives reasonable them reasonable cause, cause like, to enter. And if they hear like people screaming or smell smoke or anything like that. Right, right. Yeah, it gives they them, they can enter. So, so, they, so now they get in the house. And they also had a call of disturbance and you're on a military installation. So like the MPs can go into your house. Like, right now, the MPs right. could literally just come into my house if they wanted to and be like, oh, you're right, we you're heard right, you're that right. you're drinking rosé at nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> like, right, right. They can do no, that. No, that's a valid point. That's a valid point. That's true. So... Tavir steps into what he believes is the bedroom. So they're kind of going through the house, and he gets into the bedroom, and there's blood everywhere. I mean, it's on the ceiling. It's on the wall. It's everywhere. Oh, my God. Yeah. And he sees a woman on the ground covered in blood, 
And also Jeffrey McDonald is lying next to her. Okay. So Tavir thought Tavir thought that Jeff was dead and he start and like Jeff starts to move. And so Jeff says, <gasps> like, check on my kids. I heard my kids. So Tavir and Micah. Hey, I take hurt a, my kids or I, I heard, heard my kids. I heard. I heard my kids. Like he heard them yeah. screaming. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Okay. Tavir and Micah take a few steps into the first smaller bedroom and they see a little girl dead. And in the second bedroom, they see another girl dead. So we got two dead kids. Is it the same kind of like bloody massacre kind of a scene? Yeah, or are there's they... just blood. Everywhere. Oh my God. So now a lot of people are like showing up to the crime scene. Bill Ivory who were pedestrians in, or, or just like, police mil, and stuff. like military detectives and peace. Okay. 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 Forensics. Like everybody's kind of showing up. So Bill okay. Ivory, who worked in the criminal investigation unit at the time describes the living room looking like there'd been some kind of struggle. He mentions that when he sees Colette, the wife, she's dead too, lying on the floor, there were, there was a pl- blue pajama top laying across her chest. And he was like, huh, that's strange. So that's a key evidence. Like, remember the blue pajama top? Was okay. she clothed otherwise? Or did yeah, she, like, not she have any clothed. clothes on? There was no was sexual assault. There's no sexual assault. It was assault. just a separate yeah. a separate pajama top laid mm-hmm. across her. Okay. Yeah. There's, like, no and, – and there's no sexual assault on the children or anything like that. It's no sexual just assault. Just murder. It's just murder. <laughs> um, yeah. Just. Just. Just murder. Just. So – uh, Ivory notices on the headboard in the main, in the master bedroom, uh, pig was written in blood. So he tells oh. us, so Ivory tells us that Colette McDonald was stabbed 21 times in the neck and chest with a knife and an ice pick. And oh my both God. arms were broken <gasps> and she had been clubbed to death as well. So the arms are broken because she was trying to defend herself. Oh, my God. The older daughter, Kimberly, who was five at the time, had been stabbed between eight to ten times and had a blunt force trauma wound to her head. Oh. The younger daughter, Kristen, who was two, had been stabbed 33 times with a knife and 15 times with an ice pick. Why? So, Why? Girl... So two knife wounds penetrated her heart, and the ice prick wounds were pretty shallow. So in my mind, I'm hoping that within two she died stabbings, quick. she's done quick, which is very um, precise. Do you know what I'm saying? It's Right, and it's strange that the, the youngest daughter was the one who ha- was stabbed the most. Yeah, and we'll get into that. Oh. So... They And so the detectives end up finding the murder weapons, which was a club, an ice pick, and a knife. And I believe, like, in the documentary, it shows you that, like, the knife and the ice pick were found next to each other in the front yard, which is also very weird because if you're going to be murdering somebody with those weapons, you're not just going to throw them You're not going to leave it in the yard. No, No. you're not going to leave it in the yard. And you're definitely not going to leave them next to each other. Like, that's no. just really stupid. No, okay. no, no, yeah. So at this point, uh, Jeff is in the hospital, and the detectives go to the hospital, and they find Wait, out. Wait, was he also stabbed? You'll find out. 
<laughs> so they find out that Jeff has scrapes and wounds on his abdomen and sm some small puncture wounds that were not serious and weren't life-threatening, and he wasn't in distress. So the detectives start interviewing him about the night. Because they're like, why did you murder your family, right? Yeah. So one of the detectives, Hodges, tells us what Mac, like what Jeff told him. Okay. And so... Yeah, let's hear this story. I'm this curious. This is Jeff's version of the story. So Jeff and Colette had been listening to records, and he dozed off on the couch, and she went to bed. So we're, you got to remember, we're 1970s, so, like, records are, like, a thing. Yep, um, yep. He, so he's on the couch, and he said he hears Colette yell, Jeff, Jeff, why are they doing this to me? And he wakes up. And he says, hippies had broken into the house and attacked him and his family. He says he sees three males and a woman with long blonde hair and a white floppy hat wearing boots. The woman is holding a candle and she's saying acid, acid is groovy, acid is groovy. Which like, if that actually happened, that's fucking terrifying. This he story says, sounds like such bogus. Yeah, so he says his PJ shirt the blue pajama top, got in his way and he couldn't defend himself. So it had like, as he was trying to defend himself, it had gotten like up over his head and like around his wrist. So he couldn't defend himself. And right. he says he doesn't know how his shirt got off him. And he hears his wife and daughters yelling for him. Next thing he remembers is he's lying in the hallway. His wife was lying next to the bed. He tried to give her CPR. And it wasn't working. So that is when he called the MPs. He then went and checked on the kids. And he, the MPs still weren't there. So he calls the operator again and said that he needs an ambulance and that some people have been stabbed and he thought he was going to die. So like... I don't buy it. Yeah. Yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's take a second and think about this. So this is happening right after Vietnam. So there is a lot of drugs going on. And it's yeah. right after the Manson murders. The Mansons were oh, arrested yeah. in December 1969. It just absolutely... months before the McDonald's murders. Which is like when I, I was, was watching the documentary and I saw the pig, I was like, oh, that's Manson murders. Yes, exactly. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Okay. It seems like this guy's just trying to use some, like, I don't know, pop phobia to make up a story. So at this point, though, it seemed like that they believed him because he did have a great, like, everyone liked him. You'll, you'll find out. But, like, everyone really liked him. There's no reason to not believe. Like, there was no, like, prior domestic disturbance or anything like that. So, like, everyone's kind of believing him at this point. Like, they're believing well, yeah, the story. Well, yeah, because they just had Charles Manson. So yeah. they're like, this could be a thing that people are just doing now. Yeah. Yep. So now everyone is looking for these, like, crazy hippies, and people are freaking out. At the time, Fort Bragg was called Vietnam. Yeah, it's still called Vietnam. <laughs> and it was essentially like a melting pot of hippies, vets with drug, pro drug problems. So the police start to like round up a bunch of hippies and asking them if they were involved or knew who it could have been. 
And finally, the name Helena Stockley came up. And she is a key player in this. So just... Okay. Yeah. Helena. Helena. A city police officer named Prince Beasley, which is like, what a freaking name. I know. Yeah, his parents didn't do him any favors. No. Claimed Helena fit this description of what McDonald saw. Okay. See, Mac- I'm going to start. I just got I just got to say Jeff. I think I'm just going to call him Jeff from now on because sure. like I just automatically go to Mick and it's Mac. Um Beasley ends up watching her house and in the early morning a car pulls into the driveway and Helena was in it and some guys get out of the car. So he goes up to her and asks if she was at the McDonald's house. And she says she was on drugs that night, but she thought she could have been there. And Prince calls Ivory and Ivory is the military, right? So he's a military detective. Mm-hmm. Ivory, he interviews her, but is like, nothing is tying her to this case. There's no physical evidence. She you have said to remember, she thought it was she might rain. have been there? It was, yeah. She was like, I might have been there. Um, and we'll get into more of her background, too. So you have okay. to remember, though, it's a rainy night. So wouldn't there be wet footprints? Wouldn't there be muddy footprints? Muddy, yeah. If they had to go in the backyard? Yeah, so like, that's true. There's no physical evidence saying that she's there. Hmm. So it's about halfway through the first day of them investigating, and the detectives are like, yeah, his story doesn't fucking add up. Like, something's right. not right here. Right. And Ivory and his team go back to the house to take a closer look at the crime scene, and the break-in didn't make any sense. And Hodges says that when you get right down to it, he's the only one that could have done it. Mm-hmm. Which, like, makes sense. Damn. Yeah. So the Army ends up charging Jeff an Article 32, which is the military okay. equivalent to a civilian hearing. Okay. And we meet Mike Malley, who was actually getting ready to leave for school. And he sees, so in the documentary, they introduce us to Mike Malley. And I'm going to kind of go based on the documentary since a lot of my information came from the documentary. And um, so Mike Mallory is getting ready to leave for school and he sees the paper about the murders and he's like, he couldn't believe it. And it doesn't make sense because he knows Jeff. Jeff was his roommate sophomore year in college. They both went to Princeton. Their junior year, Jeff left to go to medical school. Mally left to go to law school. So he actually ends up getting a letter from Jeff saying that he's going to request him to be part of his defense team. And Jeff is like, dude, I'm barely out of law school. Like, you need to hire a trial lawyer. So this is when Bernard, and he goes by Bernie, Sega, ends up becoming his defense attorney. So so this is his. So Jeff ends up getting a defense attorney that is not military. And that plays a critical role in his Article 32 hearing. So Clifford S'mores, S'mores, S'mores. It looks like S'mores. S'mores. Ugh, sorry. It really does look like S'mores. Okay. S'more, S'mores. 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 What's his name? What's his first name? Clifford. Yeah, let's call him Cliff. Cliff. 
So Cliff is the lead Army prosecutor, and James Doubt is the Army defense team. So the Army, of course, still has to have their own defense team. Okay. And at this time, there's a very anti-Army feeling in the nation. And this case yeah. had everything. So at this time, this case is all over because it's an all-American boy. He's a Green Beret physician, had a pregnant wife. He's Ivy League. Two little girls were killed. He's a good, like when you look at the, if you see the home videos, like he's a good looking man and he's a white man. Yeah. So like, there's no way he could have done he, this. Of course not. Of course no. not. Like, like. It couldn't have been him. It could never be him. And it always is. So the judge <laughs> is Hammond Be Beal. And technically, like the Article 32 hearings, they don't have a judge. They have like a legal advisor. So he's a, the equivalent of the legal advisor. Okay. Of the judge. Sorry. Okay. So July 7th, 1970, the trial starts. Micah, the first MP, was called to testify. And he goes over what he saw. And, um, and he goes over like all the details. Cliff is trying to establish that there wasn't a break-in. And he mentions that the dining room is like six feet away from where the crime took place. So he was, Jeff was a captain at the time in the army. So they lived in an apartment okay. and it's a small apartment and you see photos of it. And it's kind of like their living room and dining room are connected and it's not a very big space. Okay. And so like if, if there was a struggle and it, people were fighting, like he claims was happening, like the table would have gotten bumped. Something would have gotten knocked. So, yeah. So Micah says that the dining room table, that like the dining room wasn't disturbed because mm -hmm. they had like, you know, the dining room table and like a little um, like drawer chest up against mm -hmm. the wall. Um, Probably had china in it or something. Oh, yeah. So Micah says that the dining room wasn't disturbed. And Cliff points out that there are still cards, like Valentine's Day cards, still standing on a table that is six feet away from where the crime scene took place. Yeah, that would have gotten bumped. Yeah. Micah then says that the coffee table was on its side. Cliff is like, the investigators kicked over this table multiple times, and it always fell on its top. Like, they tried different ways to see if they could get it to fall on its side. So... Uh. We go So in the documentary, Mally brings up the fact that the Army didn't really know what a real defense counsel could do. So the defense team, Bernie, they do their own investigation. The civilian defense team, yes. right? Yes. Bernie is a civilian. We find out that the pictures the military were using were from two different photographers and that there was a time lapse of when the pictures were taken. The first photographer was so upset, like he couldn't keep going, he was sick to his stomach, so they had to stop and bring someone else in. And the crime scene was never secured. Like, oh, I know. I'm like, the stuff no. we have learned about crime scenes since like the 70s, let me tell you. That is, Ugh, that I is, know. That is crime scene 101. Secure, 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 <laughs> the, <laughs> secure the crime scene, secure the crime scene. Like, come on, let's get it together. I know. Do not like, seriously, come on. It ruins so much evidence. Just secure the scene. I know. But it's okay. The only reason we know that and we're screaming it is because of cases exactly like, like this. this one. So Bernie is just, 
he's like pulling the case apart. And we find out that things had been moved. So in one picture, you see a flower pot, pot had been moved. Um, by the investigators? By someone that was waiting for the bodies to be moved. So like they moved uh. the case so the gurney could come out, but then they never put it back. So then in one photo, you see the flower pot case one area and the other photo, you see it in a different area. So it's just a huge mess. And so Bernie's team is actually able to prove how the table could land on its side because a rocking chair had been moved while the investigators were trying to recreate it. Mm -hmm. And they point out that 27 people went through that crime scene. So if Jeff Damn. was telling the truth about the hippies, footprints might have gotten messed around with, um, but it still doesn't really add up. And we'll get more into that later. But like, there is that reality that like any physical evidence that the, the hippies problem. could have left could have been completely cleaned up. No, and that's the problem with not securing a damn scene and mm -hmm. making sure the integrity of the scene stays intact. It's not like the concern that maybe a bunch of people who were on acid came into his house. It's that this man who probably killed his wife and children, I, I don't know, we don't know the end, but probably gets away with it. You'll see. So, <laughs> so his legal team interviews friends, family, patients, and everyone is like, in love with Jeff. There's nothing bad to say about Jeff. Even his father-in-law, Freddie Cassaba, says at the Article 32 hearing that if he had another daughter, he would still want the same son-in-law. What? Yep. That is insane. So that's the defense team is showing that this crime scene wasn't secure, that pictures didn't match up, that they used a Damn. time lapse, that things were moved. So like you can't really prove. So then we go into the prosecutor's theory. Okay. Craig Chamberlain was an army forensic investigator. And like, I kind of wish I knew some of this stuff was around in the army. Cause like I might've joined the military just so I could do this shit. I know. Yeah. And I that might've been really awesome for you. For. Like I'm doing such great things with my fashion merchandising degree. Let me tell you. Girl, me too. My zookeeping degree is doing so much for me. <laughs> I know. We're really living a lot. College is a scam. <laughs> not all the time. Just not when you don't know what the fuck you want to do with your life. Yeah, so, exactly. Don't go till you know what you want to do. I know. So Chamberlain says that the most important evidence was that each family member had a different blood type. Okay. Because of this, you could trace everyone's blood. So the mm. prosecutor's theory is that an argument started and it escalated. And Jeff picked, Jeff, Jesus, Jeff picks up <laughs> the club. And I don't know if I put it in these notes, but the club actually came from part of the bedroom set because like their master bedroom, like bed had been broken. So he used like a club to hold like it up. Like he ripped off a piece no, no, of no. the bed? He used like the club to like hold up the, the, the bed. Oh, so he had okay. got, got that's it, got where it, he had it. gotten it from. Got it. Got so it. Okay, him okay, and Colette okay. are like arguing, right? And it escalates and he starts hitting Colette with the club. So his oldest daughter, Kimberly, wakes up and goes into the bedroom to see what is going on. And when he swings around, he accidentally hits her right across the head with it, like on the temple and down. And like accidentally kills her. No. Oh. So where he hit her, since he's a doctor, he knows that 
it's either going to, she is either going to die or if she does survive, she's going to have serious brain damage. So he Mm. takes Kimberly back to her bedroom. At this point, Colette goes to Kristen's bedroom to try to protect her, Kristen, and Jeff hits her in the head, which kills her, and then takes her back to the master bedroom. And I believe the hit in the head that she got from Jeff at that point did kill her. I believe that's correct. So during this time, under the flip, and Kristen is still sleeping, okay? So... Under the flip table in the living room while they're doing the investigation, they find that on the Esquire magazine, Kimberly's blood is on it. And there's an article about the Manson murders, mm-hmm. which included God damn the it. picture of the word pig in blood. God so they damn think it. like he put everybody like back, whatever, and went to the kitchen. Because he then goes back to Kristen's room and he stabs her. That's why, like, remember she had two puncture hearts to the heart? Yeah. So, like. Puncture hearts? Puncture wounds? Puncture hearts. Puncture wounds. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) To the heart that she, um, to me, that means that, like, he knew what he was doing. He killed her relatively. Yeah. I mean, he's a doctor. Well, kind of, kind of, because let me get to more to this. Okay. So he then goes back to Kristen's room to stab her, but she was awake at this time because she did have defensive wounds to her hands. Damn. So he, you know, and he had already, I think when he put um, Kimberly back in her room, he, that's when he killed her. Damn. So then he, then, he then goes back to his, the master bedroom and stabs Colette and writes pig on the headboard, but there's no fingerprints. They find surgical gloves in the bedroom and found his blood on the kitchen floor next to the sink that the surgical gloves were kept in. Oh my God. So remember how the doctors are in the hospital when he was in the hospital, they're like, he has wounds, but none of them are life-threatening. Yeah. Jeff did have a wound, a wound that resulted in a collapsed lung, but in the bathroom at the house, they find drippings of type B blood, which was his. And in his story the hippies were not bleeding none of them were stabbed so if it wasn't one of theirs it has to be his so he he had gone into the bathroom Mm -hmm. he had done those wounds to himself is what the prosecutors are saying because he knew because it was precise like it was a precise one so back in the courtroom micah's it micah is talking about the drive to the call he does say he sees a woman at a bus station on post, kind of looking like she's hiding, and he tells his lieutenant, hey, what the hell is she doing? It's 3.30 a.m. Why is she out at this bus stop a couple blocks away from the crime scene? Okay. So when they start working on Jeff to, like, you know, get him prepped and, like, on the gurney and to the hospital the night of the murders, Jeff is describing what happened, and the woman... And Micah is like, dude, that's the woman I saw two blocks away from here. He tells the defense team what he saw. So a sketch of the girl hits the newsstand and tips start to come in. But one tip actually leads to something. And the defense calls William Edward Posey. And he was a neighbor of of, um, Helena. And on the night of the murder, he saw Helena get out of a Mustang and go into the house, and she had a big floppy hat and a pair of white boots. So everything is kind of pointing Mm. to Helena that she fits his description. 
Micah, though, says that the woman was not Helena because he knew her from around. So that's kind of how the Article 32 hearing ends in mm. the documentary. And then we find out the okay. army clears MacDonald and he was honorable discharged. Mm. Surprise, surprise. So, again, I didn't put all the information in from what the documentary said, but, like, I'm an army brat and I'm a Marine Corps wife. So, like, obviously I'm very pro-military. I'm very pro our women and men in uniform. Mm-hmm. But that is not to say that if you know somebody higher up and they like you, that they will do whatever they can to protect their own. And the documentary yep. kind of hints to that and again watch it because it goes into more detail Mm. yeah so that is so he gets cleared by the army and he's honorable discharged so this is where we really get into freddie kassab who is the real in like he is the shit i want him on my side if things go down like he is like we still got this sounds like it's the end of the story but we still got three more pages of notes so i'm curious to it's not the end of the story it's not the end of the story hold on tight guys it's about to be a fucking crazy ride. All right, so I'm going to stop right what? there so that everyone can kind of, like, digest what's going on. Um, but join us next week or, you know, next couple days and see what happens in part two. All right, find us on all of your streaming platforms. We are there. I know for sure we've been approved on Spotify. Apple Podcasts is coming. I think we're on Stitcher. Um, but in the next, like, week or so, we should be there. Okay, bye guys.